The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. HIPAA, right, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, was passed in 1996. And in 1996, there obviously were not iPhones. There were not all of the social media platforms. There were not uh, data brokers all over the place. And so the reason that actually a lot of Americans have their health data out there for sale without them knowing it is because a lot of these companies that collect health data now are not covered by HIPAA. So if you have a telehealth app to meet with some random person with no connection to a HIPAA covered entity, they can actually turn around and sell your data. You know, if you use a meditation app and input information about feeling depressed or sad or anxious, and they are not, you know, attached to a hospital, for example, they are legally permitted to sell people's health data. I'm Stephanie Pell, senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, June 9th, 2023. The data broker industry and its role in the digital economy is under scrutiny from Congress. I sat down with Justin Sherman, the founder and CEO of Global Cyber Strategies and a senior fellow at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy to discuss the data broker ecosystem and the recent article he published in Lawfare about two bills from a previous Congress that seek to give consumers more control over the information that data brokers collect and sell about them. We talked about some of the scams and other harms caused by data brokers, the regulatory approaches taken by each bill, and whether federal legislation regulating data brokers will get passed. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 9th. Justin Sherman on regulating the data broker industry. Justin, can you start by telling us a bit about the data broker ecosystem? Who are these entities known as data brokers and what do they do? Data brokers are companies that are involved, broadly speaking, in the collection and aggregation and selling of data. So, uh, this might be a company that gathers and sells lists of people who really like coffee uh, or who are big uh, soccer fans or something and puts that into a marketing list that they sell all the way to you know companies that are gathering tons of different data points, uh, location data, health data, other kinds of things. And again, the purpose of or, uh, the model, the business model is to package different kinds of data to then sell to different groups. So to sell to advertisers, to law enforcement, uh, and so on. So not everyone has heard of data brokers. There are many data broker companies that I think most consumers have never heard of in their life and might never interact with in their life. But uh, the reality is that this is actually a multi-billion dollar industry uh, in the US, hundreds of billions of dollars by some estimates. And these companies on the whole collect data pretty much about every single American. Uh, and so whether uh, listeners know it or not, uh, myself included, it's very likely that uh, our our data, uh, whether that's health data, political data, you name it, phone location, uh, is, is collected and sold as part of this industry. Now, what sources do these data brokers uh, collect their information from? I, I guess the way you started to, to, to frame this was, these are kind of third-party companies that are collecting data from 
a number of different sources, a number of different kinds of data. What what do we know about how these entities get the data? It's such an such an important question, uh, especially when we you know get which I'm sure we will later to sort of the policy and legal questions around harm and and controlling for harm. So. You know, it, it, it is true, as you said, that uh, data brokers are often thought of as third parties. That's sort of the conventional thinking is that uh, a data broker is not, you know, the the sort of software company you buy your, your tax software from or something, right? It's a third party that gets data about you and is selling it out there somewhere and you don't know them. I would say that, that's sort of a, a couple decades outdated view of the data broker industry. Uh, if we're talking maybe 2000, 2005, that's more or less accurate, right? Data brokers uh, were primarily third parties and would get data, among other things, by scraping public records. So voting registries, property filings, uh, and this still happens today. Uh, but they would do that. They put cookies in someone's browser and and track, you know, which websites they visited. And then maybe from that, say, you know, is visitor A going to uh, msnbc.com? Is visitor B going to foxnews.com, right? Things have changed a lot since then. Uh, and so the reason I say this is that today, uh, a lot of data that data brokers sell, they get from what we call first party collectors. So the companies you actually interact with. Uh, and mobile apps are a big part of this. So uh, obviously, in the 2005 timeframe, in that example I gave, there were not all these smartphone apps that people were using. Data brokers did not have as many ways to get data directly on individuals. But today, the number of apps uh, on people's phones alone uh, collect health data, location data, contact information. Uh, there's all kinds of behavioral information. Uh, even from apps, you can get information on religion and sexual orientation, right? If someone downloads uh, a Christian news app, a Muslim prayer app, that could give away religion. If you download an LGBTQ dating app, that can give away uh, that status. So I'll just say, you know, today, a lot of data that's out there that data brokers have, they do get because a first party company will sell to them. Uh, and so that that's a really sort of important point as we think about A, how does this industry work? And then B, how do we start to think about the risks to individuals? So in that regard, is it fair to think about first party companies as functioning as data brokers themselves? It could be. Uh, I, I think so. Yeah. the Actually, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, has an open request for information about data brokers uh, and that agency has now taken the position that data brokers are both first and third parties. Uh, this is a position that the FTC took almost uh, 10 years ago now in its 2014 report on data brokers, um, where the FTC did not make a, a sort of carve out for first parties that sell data. So I'll just say, you know, when it comes to, to the law, we can get into a debate about what makes a company a data broker versus maybe a company that sells data on the side or something. But, you know, the, the phrase you used up top about the data brokerage ecosystem, that's a phrase we use a lot at our Duke uh, data broker project because, you know, it refers to that ecosystem of companies involved. And yes, some might just sell data, some might do it on the side, some might do it in different ways, but they're all part, uh, as you said, of this broader picture of people actually buying and selling data about consumers. Now, you recently testified in front of Congress at a hearing that was looking at data brokers in the digital economy. But before we get to that, you just mentioned work you're doing at Duke with respect to a data broker project. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Yeah. So uh, I you know, spend some of my time, um, I'm based here in, in DC, but I spend some of my time at the public policy school at Duke, uh, which is sort of the leader at Duke of uh, all of the tech policy research that, that goes on. So, um, and collaborates with other, you know, law school and computer science and stuff. And so one of our projects that we've had for 
uh, two and a half going on three years now is a research project looking at data brokers. And so we uh, have published studies, for instance, on the sale of Americans' mental health data. Um, the fact, for instance, that you know lots of telehealth apps and stuff that exploded during the pandemic are not actually regulated under federal law, so they can sell your health data. We look at um, you know the sale of data on the military and, and different projects, but but a lot of you know what we'll talk about today and a lot of the stuff I've written that Lawfare has been so kind to run over the years has been on data brokers has been from this Duke project and the insights we've gotten as our team actually uh, and the students spend a lot of time studying this ecosystem and and actually purchasing data from data brokers. Uh, is something else we do because we have an IRB process, of course, as a research university, unlike most nonprofits and other groups who also do great work on data brokers, we can actually go purchase data from brokers to see what that looks like. So yeah, so so that that's sort of what my reference was to and and you know, a huge source of what I draw on when I think about this ecosystem. So along those lines then, I, I presume you drew, you drew on some of that work in your recent testimony in front of the House Energy and Commerce's subcommittee on oversight and investigations at a hearing you testified at called Who is Selling Your Data? A Critical Examination of the Role of Data Brokers in the Digital Economy. So first of all, I'm interested in what some of the scams and other harms relating to data brokers that you talked about with the committee at this hearing? There's a really long list uh, if we're doing uh, all of them, but but exactly to what you said in the hearing, uh, we sort of we meeting my team as I was writing my testimony, I decided sort of let's focus on a few. And so uh, one issue I spoke about was the fact that there is a bunch of data that is collected and sold by data brokers on the open market about U.S. military service members. You can buy data about uh, active duty military personnel. You can buy data about veterans. And there have been a bunch of scamming harms attached to this. You'll have uh, military families who, uh, you know, their information is out there and then they're scammed because of a variety of reasons, including oftentimes the benefits they and their families get from the federal government. There's also a potential risk that a foreign actor, I think, could, you know, buy data or hack into data from this ecosystem. You know, I referenced in my testimony, we have a forthcoming study from Duke, uh, where we actually were able to buy a bunch of highly sensitive identified data on active duty military service members, uh, for as low as 12 and a half cents a service member. So, you know, very concerning. And as all this other debate is going on about TikTok and data and China, uh, this industry is something to think about. Another harm I mentioned is stalking and gendered violence. So I made reference earlier to brokers who will go online and scrape public records like voting registries, property filings. And these are often called people search websites. These white pages, websites of sorts when you search a name and there's some sketchy pop-up like run a background check, right? These companies scrape these public records, they compile this information and they post it online to make it searchable. And so because that is a pretty common practice across uh, covering most of the US population, for you know 20 plus years, abusive individuals uh, have been able to purchase that information from people search websites and then use that particularly home address information to hunt down and stalk and intimidate and harass and assault and even murder actually like people have quite literally been killed predominantly women and and members of the LGBTQ community so I, I talked about that as an issue that you know all the time if you talk to any of the national uh, domestic violence networks or anything like that, you'll have someone, again, primarily a woman who perhaps maybe moves to a new state and is trying to, you know, start a new chapter of her life uh, kind of thing. And an abusive individual can go on these websites because they repopulate people's addresses and find out where she lives. So talked about that. And the last couple of things I hit on were 
related to uh, the fact that you can get data on elderly Americans and people with Alzheimer's on the open market. And the Department of Justice uh, actually had a couple of cases uh, on this in 2020 and 2021, where there were three data brokers who were collecting a ton of data on elderly Americans and people with Alzheimer's. They were approached by criminal scammers who wanted the data. Uh, And for about a decade each, uh, these companies sold that data knowingly to criminal scammers. And I say knowingly, it's like actually quite uh, insane if you go read the filings uh, that the sort of the companies knew about it. But um, what this enabled them to do is then to say who's really gullible in the U.S. population because they are suffering from uh, Alzheimer's or dementia and then target them. And people had millions of dollars stolen from them uh, collectively. Uh, There was one large data broker that uh, sold data on over 30 million of these vulnerable people to a variety of criminals. So, so hit on all of those. And again, you know, these are just some examples of the harms. I should also say, if you want to read more about this, a lot of this is up on the Lawfare site. Uh, and my, my colleague, Alistair Simmons, and I, uh, a student at Duke, have written a lot on the Alzheimer's scams. But, but again, just trying to say, okay, this is a really huge opaque ecosystem. How can we actually articulate this in a way that that resonates with the committee members. And I'm curious, were there particular stories or issues that seem to resonate particularly strongly with the members? And is it fair to say that the concerns over data brokers are in fact a bipartisan issue? I do think it's bipartisan. Um, I'll, I'll go in reverse order on these on okay. these questions. Uh, I do think it's bipartisan, and this will feed into the the first part. Uh, which is that we have yet to obviously, as you know, there are too many issues going on, right? And any of us who study anything, it's easy to get in our bubble and forget there's 80 million other things going on. So, um, you know, certainly there are plenty of offices where data brokers are not on their radar because they have lots of other things they're they're thinking about and working on or worrying about. But I, I and I really do mean this. Like even in our Duke project in the last few years, we have yet to have a case where we spend a bunch of time with a congressional office and they do not walk away concerned about this ecosystem. Um, And I have been very pleasantly surprised by the amount of bipartisan interest in things like the sale of health data. Um, Right. And obviously there are lots of uh, issues to get into around the criminalization of, of pregnancy and other things, right. Um, That, you know, follow political divides and partisan divides, but like, even issues like that, where we've had really great conversations with Democrats and Republicans, and this came out at the hearing about, okay, you know, both parties agreed, you know, almost 30 years ago that we need a federal uh, health data law that has some privacy controls. Like, how is it that we have all these companies who are not regulated who can sell health data? So that's all been bipartisan. Um, In terms of the issues that have resonated most, that is one of them. Health data has really uh, been one that's hit uh, hard, I think, in a bunch of offices, especially when we talk about the fact that you can purchase data about people who are suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia um, and use that to scam them, which has happened, as I mentioned, uh, many, many times and is really just horrific, honestly, um, and, and extremely exploitative. And so that's really landed. Uh, the issues related to stalking also resonate. And another one that really I'll say has been one that came up at the hearing and, and come up more lately is national security. And uh, I think it was actually Representative uh, McMorris Rogers in, in the hearing I did, who, who she led the separate TikTok CEO hearing, right? Who asked something like, Okay, we're con- you know I'm concerned about the Chinese government uh, potentially accessing data through an application like TikTok. Is it possible that you know the Chinese government could exploit you know the data broker industry, whether by buying through a front company data on Americans or hacking in and taking data on the military or something? To which the answer is, of course, yes. So it was it was certainly good to see that you know enter the conversation there i actually had a reporter uh joke to me afterwards like that's the first bipartisan hearing i've watched in a long time um but but it but it also wasn't in this narrow privacy context because i think actually the house energy commerce committee has been doing a bunch of hearings that 
on privacy that have been strongly bipartisan uh, in the last several months. And that's, that's, you know, there's a lot of gridlock and inaction everywhere else, but that's, that's at least uh, good to see, I think. So I want to touch a bit more on the issues of the data broker industry and, and specifically health data. Um, you've been looking and writing on this issue for a while. Are there particular problems or examples that you would like to share with our listeners? Absolutely. So you can go online and, you know, you can get data, you can purchase data about Americans' health conditions. You can buy data about Americans' health conditions with their names attached. Uh, And when I say health conditions, I mean lists of people with cancer, uh, lists of people with diabetes, lists of people suffering, as I said, from Alzheimer's and dementia. You can get uh, lists of people who take antidepressants. You can get lists of people uh, who have had strokes or who have been sexually assaulted even. That was uh, Pam, Pam Dixon at the World Privacy Forum uh, nonprofit has done a lot of, of work on this too. And that was one she found years ago it was a list of survivors of sexual assault, which is just like horrific that a company would would compile and sell that. But you know, all to say, most of us, I think, reasonably so, say, okay, there's doctor-patient confidentiality. If I, you know, go into the doctor's office with a sore throat, you know, they're not going to go tweet all over the internet that I had a sore throat that day, for instance, right? And of course, there are other gaps in confidentiality, as as referenced with stuff going on in the country right now, but. But people sort of assume, okay, I go into the urgent care, I talk to my, you know, kid's pediatrician, there are controls around that. And that's true, there are. The problem, though, is that the law that puts those in place is outdated. The HIPAA, right, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act was passed in 1996. And in 1996, there obviously were not iPhones, there were not all of the social media platforms, there were not a data broker is all over the place. And so the reason that actually a lot of Americans have their health data out there for sale without them knowing it is because a lot of these companies that collect health data now are not covered by HIPAA. So if you have a telehealth app to meet with some random person with no connection to a HIPAA covered entity, they can actually turn around and sell your data. You know, if you use a meditation app and input information about feeling depressed or sad or anxious, and they are not, you know, attached to a hospital, for example, they are legally permitted to sell people's health data. Um, and this happens. The, the FTC has done some recent cases uh, against, for instance, GoodRx, the prescription drug provider website. Millions of Americans use this company. Probably zero of those people knew that GoodRx was turning around and sharing people's health conditions with third parties. So um, I say all this to say there's a lot of health data out there that none of us know is out there. Uh, We had a student, Joanne Kim, find all of this mental health data you could go buy, like literally specific antidepressant prescriptions that people were taking and, you know, people with anxiety, uh, PTSD, OCD, you name it. And so there really is this enormous ecosystem for this data. It's there because people, you know, companies, health insurance firms, whatever will pay for it. But most of us actually, myself included, really have no idea of the scope of, of the stuff that's out there. And you wrote a piece some months ago now involving the practices of data brokers running anti-abortion ads. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, there was a case. I wrote about this recently, although the uh, incident that I was talking about happened, I think, back in 2015, I want to say, uh, is there was this Massachusetts company uh, run and owned by an individual uh, that was a data broker. And among other things, what this company was doing was it was tracking smartphones uh, and their geolocations as people visited reproductive healthcare facilities. It was secretly, you know, or quietly, whatever word you want to use, gathering that location data. And then once it had that, it geofenced those reproductive healthcare facilities and sold 
targeted ad access to those devices to anti-abortion groups. All to say the product of this was that this company uh, based out of Massachusetts was doing this in a few different states and uh, women literally sitting in, for example, abortion uh, clinic waiting rooms would get these extremely uh, manipulative ads delivered right onto their phone. And so, you know, so this is just one example of, of many others, but just shows that people are not aware of the ways in which data is collected on them and shared and all this, but data brokers in particular are a very opaque industry. And you have practices like this where, you know, someone merely going to access uh, a healthcare service is then suddenly having their data quietly collected and maybe sold and then used to target them. And so the, now the outcome of this is that the Massachusetts attorney general, you know, I think filed a preemptive injunction against this, uh, company, which was interesting because the the company was based in Massachusetts, but had not done this in Massachusetts. They'd done it elsewhere, but they basically argue there's a high likelihood they will do it here, and then it will violate uh, some of our consumer protection laws. So the person admitted no guilt, but agreed to not do it in Massachusetts. But but again, you you know you can't undo that harm. Like you can, you know you could you can do injunctions for a company after the fact. You can find a company after the fact, but. Regardless of what kind of healthcare someone is accessing, if someone is in the process of making a healthcare decision and a data broker enables someone to target them to try and manipulate that decision in the moment, like you're already too late. Uh, and so I think that just really under- is, is a great illustration, a horrible example, but a great illustration of, of some of the, the risks here. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay 
And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So with respect to those risks, I want to talk about the bills that have been written on the federal level uh, to try and address these data broker practices. You recently wrote a piece for Lawfare comparing and contrasting these bills. And before we get into the substance of those bills, you do acknowledge in the outset of your piece that there are states that have passed privacy protections that that regulate the activities of data brokers. Can you talk about why federal legislation is needed in addition to the kinds of activities that states are taking to regulate data brokers and 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 stop a number of the harms that that you've talked about with us? There are a bunch of reasons why federal uh, legislation is needed, right? There are questions about you know the feasibility if you're a company of complying with theoretically, 50 different, you know, state laws, let's say there's, there are gaps in some of the state laws that could be addressed at the federal level. But uh, at a base level, it's much simpler, which is not everyone lives in California. And not everyone lives in Virginia or in a state with a privacy law. And so, so many Americans do not have the ability to contact a company. And under the force of law, say, stop selling my data, or, uh, you know, tell me if you're going to attempt to collect data on me, right? So having action like that at the federal level, I think is really, really important to make sure there is that, yeah, cohesive picture, that's important to fill in gaps, that's important, but fundamentally to make sure that, you know, the federal government, uh, in particular Congress, is actually doing its job to, you know, extend consumer privacy protections to everyone in the United States, not just you know, people who happen to live in a state that is advancing this kind of legislation. So turning to the two federal bills um, that were both introduced in the last Congress, but but neither, as I understand it, have been reintroduced in this Congress yet. Is that something we can expect to happen? I think so. So the two bills that I had written about recently that you referenced were ADPA, the uh, American Data Privacy Protection Act, uh, which was introduced in the last Congress and was the quote-unquote comprehensive privacy proposal that got bipartisan support uh, and by many accounts was the closest uh, the U.S. has come thus, f- Congress has come thus far to passing a comprehensive privacy law. Now, you know, the sort of half joke is like if you're, uh, you know, 100 miles from goal and then now you're 95 miles from goal, like, 
yes, you're closer to goal, but how close are you? You know, translation, it's not clear. Like it was closer to getting a pass, but there were still a bunch of stumbling blocks. And so um, I really hope Congress tries and to keep with that momentum. And it has some data broker provisions in it, which we can talk about. But and then the second bill I uh, hit upon was is the Delete Act, and this uh, is a bill that would the the full name is the Data Elimination and uh, Limiting Extensive Tracking and Exchange Act. Um, but for obvious reasons, we're just going to say the Delete Act. Uh, and some congressional staffer really got a gold <laughs> star for coming up with that acronym. I presume. <laughs> I say all the time, I, uh, <laughs> I feel bad for these staffers who have to come up with these insane acronyms. Um, and there are far crazier ones we can, we can uh, get into another time. But um, yeah, so we'll say the Delete Act. But the Delete Act sets up, uh, would set up a national registry uh, run by the FTC to have a centralized opt-out system for third-party data brokers. So at a high level, that's kind of what's also in ADPA, the Comprehensive Privacy Proposal. As you said, both of these bills were introduced in the last Congress. They were not passed. They have not yet been reintroduced into this Congress, although I do think we can expect that both ADPA and the Delete Act will be reintroduced into this Congress. Uh, and so um, that was in part my impetus for writing this was to say, okay, you know, these two bills say we need to first create a list of who these da- third-party data brokers are. Then we need to create a way for the FTC to have people one-stop shop say, stop selling my data. So uh, of course there are issues with that, right? As I just said, it's only third-party data brokers and there are some limits. So the bills would not uh, you know, directly prohibit, for instance, the sale of you know location data from an app. And you know they also both are opt out, right? Which is just how the US privacy law debate has gone. It's not saying don't do it. It's saying keep doing it until someone tells you not to if you're a broker, but but they would improve on the status quo. And so I think, uh, you know, there are little details which we can get into, but that I discuss in the piece where ADPA can learn from the Delete Act. And, you know, the Delete Act can learn a little bit from uh, ADPA. And, you know, hopefully those are ways they can improve on one another. So let's talk a little bit more about the approach to regulation that ADPA takes. As as you've noted, this is an opt-out kind of thing. It just doesn't happen unless the consumer requests that it, that it ha- that it happen. So if you can talk a little bit more about sort of the registry requirement that that ADPA sets up for data brokers, and what you may or may not like about the ADPA registry approach, and then also how we how we think about credit reporting agencies and how they are covered by ADPA. Yeah, so there are kind of three parts to the registry requirements in ADPA, um, which sort of fall into the categories of notice, registry, and penalties. So actually attached to the registry requirements. If you're a third-party data broker, and again, you can go read the bill for the definition of that. I will also say technically ADPA does not use the word data broker anywhere. It says third-party collecting entities, but this, and if you talk to the staff, like clearly is just sort of a term for data brokers that for some reason we're not calling a data broker. Um, but uh, but also there's other uses of third-party in there, so maybe it makes sense. But um, so, there, so there's, there's three categories if you're one of these covered entities, you have to put language from the FTC on your website that states you're one of these entities. And then you have to link in there to this registry that the FTC is creating to opt out. So that's the first piece is saying, if you're a covered broker and people go somehow make it to your website, like you have to tell them that you are one of these companies and here's a way to tell me to stop selling your data. The second piece is the registry itself. So this would be at the FTC. Companies would have to, again, covered entities, covered brokers, submit a bunch of information to the FTC to be publicly posted, including the company name, you know, who to contact there. Uh, and then, which I think is fantastic, uh, they have to describe the types of data that they process and transfer. Um, and I think that's big because just listing a company name 
is something that some state laws do. That's very weak. That doesn't tell us anything, but that would, you know, listing what kinds of data are collected and sold would, would be helpful. And then the third piece, right? So notice registry is penalties. And if you do not register for this website, which again, once you're registered, there's a one-click stop to get opted out of the sale, you would be fined basically nothing, uh, essentially. Um, You are fined in particular $100 each day uh, is what the language says, right? And, um, you know, you can't exceed $10,000 in a year. But, you know, this, this, as I say in the piece, this is a pathetically low fine i just have to be honest um uh uh, one of the fellow witnesses at the the hearing um i did mention this too like if you actually want a data broker to register in your system you have to create a financial incentive for them to do so and i mentioned that our duke team has bought you know data for 10 20 cents a person like these companies can make a hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars off the sale of a single data set and so the notion that $100 is going to incentivize a larger broker to register is just not the case. They just might not register and that's going to be that. You know, the flip side of that, or I guess the other piece of that, though, is that ADPA broadly does say that uh, it would have to, the FTC would have to declare an ADPA violation as an unfair or deceptive act or practice under Section 5 of the FTC Act. So the the penalties for not registering as a broker specifically are in my view it, it, like ridiculously low and need to be raised but you know some have made the point well if the ftc is given enforcement authority you could have that fine happen but then the ftc could go after them again i don't know because then there's limits on the fine and the ftc already does not have enough resources as it is and they're already doing so much so yeah, that, that, that would be my main comment on ad pose. The fines need to be higher and some of the scope needs to be tightened up there. And and so then I want to raise the issue of credit reporting agencies um, and, and first ask you, is it fair to think of credit reporting agencies as data brokers? And, and if so, are they covered in any way by this bill? I think the, the credit reporting agencies... Uh, are data brokers, you know, in the U.S., right? Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. And they're data brokers uh, engaged in credit reporting, which, you know, is a lot of the time buying and selling data. Like they gather data on people and sell it to banks and financial institutions, right? That particular activity is a regulated kind of data brokerage, right? We have the Fair Credit Reporting Act, FICRA, that puts controls around that data, It also, for example, allows any uh, American in their databases to request your credit report. It might be twice a year, I think. Anyway, but you can request your credit report from these companies. You also have the right to have them correct data in there if it's not accurate. Um, So these three companies, these credit reporting agencies are doing data brokerage. Some of that is regulated right now under uh, federal law. The challenge is that they also broker other kinds of data that a lot of people, including a lot of policymakers, are not aware of. So, you know, they uh, health data, location data, like biometric information, online data. You can go read, you can go search online or in the, the some of the lawfare uh, write up I did. But these companies sell a lot of other data that is not covered by the Fair Credit Reporting Act but is a core part of their business model. So the takeaway is, okay, so they are data, you know, they are brokering data. Some of that is covered. A lot of that is not covered under existing law. The challenge with ADPA is that ADPA, you know, basically blanket exempts them. So, you know, that makes sense in the Fair Credit Reporting Act sense, right? To say, okay, even if this company like uh, TransUnion is a data broker, there's already a process for people to submit correction requests or whatever. We're not going to interfere with that. But the problem is these same companies are also doing a bunch of stuff that's not regulated. That's exactly what ADPA is trying to get at, like selling geolocation data. Uh, and so I, I think that's something that the bill needs to address is to say, okay, we can deconflict with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But if we're trying to say we need controls around the sale of data, 
you can't ignore these multi-billion dollar companies who are also selling other kinds of information that's not covered. So I also want you to talk a little bit about how the bill addresses de-identified data and, and maybe start out by telling us what we mean or what how should we understand the concept of de-identified data, at, at least as, as the bill ap- appears to understand it. Yeah, this is something that comes up in, you know, most privacy bill discussions, which is, okay, what if a company takes a name off a piece of data? Or what if a company uses a statistical technique like differential privacy to add noise to data to sort of mask who the actual person is? Like, shouldn't that be carved out? Shouldn't we want companies to be doing that? And so, you know, much like these many other bills, ADPA also has exemptions for what it calls de-identified data. And so, you know, at its core, that is roughly defined as information that, you know, is not already linked or reasonably linked to a person um, or to a person's device. But it also has a couple other measures that usually aren't in these bills. Usually most bills stop there. But ADPA says, in addition to that, in order to get an exemption, a company has to take reasonable measures to ensure the data can't be re-identified, you know, publicly commit to process and transfer the information de-identified and to not attempt to re-identify it. And then third, to contractually obligate anybody that gets the data from the company to comply with all of those, all of those other things to make sure it's de-identified, et cetera. So, you know, in practice, I still have issues with these kinds of things because the law as with anything, surprise, but like in this area, especially with data, the law is well behind where the technology is. And even a lot of privacy lawyers will still talk about de-identification in my mind, like it's 2010 and like not really looking at all of the literature that exists from computer science researchers about how easy it is to combine data to re-identify people. So my sort of view on that is like, that's a challenge with all of these privacy proposals. I think ADPA could still be strengthened further there, but I do think ADPA is better than some other bills on this because, as I said, they add all these other requirements. If you're going to, as a company, have quote-unquote de-identified data, you have to put it in your contracts. You have to promise you're not going to re-identify it, right? You have to do all these extra steps to make sure that that's, that's actually the case. So let's turn now to the DELETE Act, which you indicated is a very focused bill specifically on uh, regulating the practice of data brokers. It's not sort of the broad privacy bill that, that ADPA is. What regulatory approach does the DELETE Act take? And maybe compare and contrast its data broker registry to ADPA's. Yeah. So the DELETE Act is in fact more targeted you know, there's an interesting conversation to be had. I know you and I have, have talked about this too, about is a more targeted bill more likely to get passed, right? It's narrower. It maybe is bumping into less issues. At the same time, privacy is an area where we've seen some members of Congress insist that the approach is comprehensive and that we can't uh, just do a piecemeal approach. So um, so it's a really interesting bill for that reason. And again, it's, it's TBD what's going to happen with these two. But but it really at its core is setting up a similar registry to what ADPA would. It is uh, intended to have uh, third-party data brokers, so not first parties, third-party data brokers uh, submit information to the FTC to be in, again, a central registry that's public that people can look up. And the Delete Act is good because the Delete Act requires uh, would require brokers to submit even more information than ADPA would. So Again, a broker might submit their name and their address and contact information, but they also will have to tell the FTC whether they have limits on opting out, whether an individual can authorize a third party to opt out for them, which could potentially enable more automation of opt-out requests, for instance. And then in addition, the bill would allow the FTC to ask additional information about the types of information the broker has and the sources that they got it from, which that is huge because that, as we had talked about at the opening, 
is a big challenge with this industry is understanding exactly where is the data coming from? Is it a mobile app that's selling someone's health data? How is a company learning health data, for instance? So, you know, for the Delete Act to say, we're going to make these brokers register and submit where they're getting their data uh, is really big. And then there's all these other things they'd have to submit to, uh, such as whether they have a credentialing process for uh, selling data. So that I think is great. That's an example, as I referenced, of where ADPA can learn from the Delete Act. Like, I don't think that would be too controversial at this point for ADPA to add in a few more bullet points about information that should be in the registry if the registry is already there. So that's that's certainly, I think, a, a positive thing. And then... Can I follow up just yeah. a, a bit on, the, on that point? Because it, it, it seems, and you know, feel free to disagree with me, but how these data brokers and and from what sources they are collecting their information seems to be a really critical piece of information if congress or other regulators you know want to do a better job of regulating a- across the ecosystem would you agree with that i mean is that information that is like really critical to have going forward you know, if we're going to continue to watch how this industry develops and and find good ways to regulate to protect consumers, it it absolutely is. Uh, and and again, that's it's such an important piece of information to understand where do data brokers get data from, and it's very opaque, right? We our research team at Duke we have bought uh, data. You know, sometimes when you do, they there is confidentiality terms from the broker. There are data brokers who will make you sign an NDA before you even talk to them about what data they have. So there's a, there, there are many efforts by the industry to make it hard for consumers, for regulators, for policymakers to understand where data is actually coming from. I personally think if most members of Congress working on tech issues were aware of how many apps sell data like literally just turn right around and sell data about their users, they would be shocked um, because this happens all the time. There are hundreds, thousands of apps in any particular vertical that sell data. And, you know, there's been some reporting, for instance, that if you're an app that collects geolocation on your users, you might be able to make thousands or $10,000 a month giving that over to a broker. So, if you're some some app developer who's, you know, busy working on your app, uh, that is a massive financial incentive to do a little bit of work, make a bunch of money, and people's data gets then turned around and sold. So, yeah, so I completely agree that that having that in there is a huge thing. I did like a whole paragraph or two on that in the article uh, on why that's a really important provision. And I really, really think Adpo should add that in. Um, again, as you said, if you're thinking about the ecosystem, just understanding where the data is flowing is a really essential piece for uh, a legislator that way and a regulator that way you know where to target your you know, legislation itself and then where to subsequently target your enforcement uh, actions. You were in the midst of comparing and contrasting um, ADPA and the Delete Act and, and telling us how each could improve on the other. So uh, other issues in that regard. Yes. Uh, and so the second piece of that, right? So once they submit this registry information in the Delete Act, it again is similar to ADPA in general that the point of the registry is having the information there and allowing a consumer to have a one-stop shop to submit all of the information. The Delete Act, to get a little technical for a second, does this differently on the technology side than ADPA. ADPA basically has a system where a person would fill out a form and then the form gets pushed to all these brokers who have to delete the data. Uh, The Delete Act would have the FTC do that, but through hashing. So using an algorithm to take, for example, you know, Justin Sherman submitting his name and his email and his home address and turning that into a string of letters and numbers, right? So that's sort of what the hash is. And um, then the data broker could query these hashes from the FTC uh, in order to process the deletion. So 
this is a this is you know in the scheme of things maybe a smaller detail of the bill but it's a really i think carefully written section in the delete act that basically gets at the whole point of this is to have a data broker not sell information on someone we should make sure in the process of opting out that people aren't giving over all this other extra information to the data broker um and so that's kind of the impetus behind okay let's not just sort of you know email blast them or whatever it is with people's information let's try and figure out like can the ftc keep it themselves can they obscure it in such a way that better protects privacy but that the broker can still uh, retrieve it and then process those uh deletion requests so that that's sort of the crux of of the delete act and again it's it's similar in general to the adpro provision but they each have these little differences that when you get into it really do really do matter. So you touched on this a little bit a few minutes ago, but I want to return to the discussion on sort of assessing a path for either of these bills to be reintroduced and, and passed. Um, I suppose reintroduction is the easy part. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, just reintroduce it. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, qu- the question, uh, right. And this is, I mean, you know, t- to add my personal commentary, like this is Congress 101, as we know, is sort of bills, 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 but then, you know, not enough interest or not enough follow through or both. Yeah. I, I think ADPA absolutely is going to be reintroduced. Uh, I'm sure the Delete Act will be too. But as you referenced, you know, the question is, okay. We saw last Congress that there was a lot of uh, disagreement about uh, ADPA, right? A lot of Democrats and Republicans support it, but there were Republicans who thought it was too uh, regulatory heavy. There were Democrats who thought it wasn't uh, regulatory enough. Uh, Nancy Pelosi had all these issues with uh, how it would interact with California's privacy law. So, you know, some of that's changed, but a lot of that hasn't too much. So uh, definitely a big, a big question mark there. So to be seen or to be determined. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the House Energy and Commerce Committee has been holding, again, the real driver of, of ADPA has been holding a ton of hearings on data privacy. And, you know, I referenced this, like, you know, there was this data broker one, but they've also done ones on, China and data and kids privacy and this and that. And, you know, again, whether ADPA will move further is a different question, but the interest is clearly there in having a conversation about privacy issues. And for all of the other partisanship in Congress, a lot of these privacy hearings have been very bipartisan in talking about kids privacy and talking about China data, national security and talking about data brokers. So, you know, maybe I'm delusional, but hopefully that's like a slight sign for a little bit more optimism that maybe there will be a little bit more movement towards that that goal uh, zone in the next, you know, several months of this Congress. Let's hope so. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think, again, that, you know, as I mentioned up front, data brokers are a huge industry in the U.S. And there has been so much really important, right, and necessary discussion about big social media platforms and data. There's a lot of talk now um, about uh, chat GPT and artificial general intelligence and all these other things, right? And again, the companies that sort of compose that ecosystem, there's so much risk associated with not just collecting data, but then just selling it. Um, And the fact that there are billions and billions of dollars spent to these companies every year to do that, to learn about Americans' health conditions, to learn about people's geolocations, um, and consumers have no knowledge it's happening and no way to stop it. I think, um, you know, I just hope that for Congress that remains top of mind when they think about privacy harms. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell and your audio engineer. This episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.